I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about what's happening with civilians on the ground in Ukraine, no-fly zones, and lots of other things, we have with us Mark Kansian of CSIS, who's a senior advisor in our international security program. Mark is also a retired Marine colonel. He also served for many years in the Office of Management Budget, where he spent a lot of time as chief of the Foreign Structure and Investment Division, working on issues such as the Defense Department budget strategy, war funding, procurement programs, as well as nuclear weapons development and non-proliferation activities at DOE. Mark, thank you for joining us today. I mean, the first question I want to ask you is, what is happening to civilians? We're seeing increasing reports that Ukrainian civilians are caught up in escalating Russian attacks. Yes, we are seeing that. And I think that's a reflection of what I would call the second phase of the war. You know, the first phase was this attempt by Russia to overturn the Ukrainian government very quickly. You know, they launched attacks on three different axes. They used this shock and awe attacks with missiles and aircraft. You know, they tried to send columns quickly into the city centers uh, like Kyiv. That failed. And when that failed, then Putin doubled down. He reinforced each one of these offensives and, you know, has renewed the offenses. But the part about the renewal is the use of firepower. Russian doctrine relies heavily on firepower. That's always been a Russian strength. So what you're seeing is the use of this firepower to, in their view, soften up targets and to help them with their ground offensives. The other place you've seen it is with these corridors that they've tried to set up for civilians to escape from besieged cities, particularly in Mariupol in the south. There's a lot of finger pointing about who's to blame for the collapse of these ceasefires in these corridors. You know, it's hard to say whether the Russians are deliberately shutting them down or whether what you're seeing is confusion on the battlefield combined with poor Russian command and control, which we've been seeing across the board. But the, the bottom line is you have some very desperate civilians trapped in these besieged cities. So, Mark, their doctrine you mentioned is sort of a shock and awe type of, you know, pummel uh, through the air, pummel with artillery. Is this because they're worried about getting into kinetic battles their soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers? Well, I think there are two reasons. I mean, one is that uh, Russian doctrine has relied on firepower for a long time. If you go back to the Red Army during World War II, massive amounts of artillery to soften up adversary defenses before they would launch an offensive. So, you know, that part goes way back and has continued to the present day. But what is different now is that the Russians are very sensitive to casualties, which is very different from the Red Army, you know, the Red Army, you know, went to victory on, you know, marching over the corpses of its comrades. The current Russian army, much smaller and sensitive to casualties. You know, they have a much more engaged citizenry. So they also have to be careful about, you know, how they use their units. Mark, why isn't Russia doing better, you know, in terms of success on the battlefield? We're hearing stories about Russian soldiers and logistics and all kinds of things not going particularly well for them. I mean, this doesn't help the Ukrainians who are, who are besieged, of course, but we are hearing that the vaunted Russian military isn't doing as well as might have been predicted. What's your take on that? Well, it's absolutely true that the Russians are not doing as well as people had expected. 
you know, the Russian military had gone through some pretty significant reforms after 2008. In 2008, they had launched an attack on the country of Georgia, and they had won, but they won ugly. They had a lot of coordination problems, and that was a wake-up call for the Russian military. You know, they had fallen into, you know, very low readiness, very low effectiveness as a result of, you know, the collapse after the Soviet Union. So they did a lot of reforms. They got a lot smaller. They, um, about two-thirds of the troops were volunteers, so they could give them more training. And the expectation was that the, the Russian military was a pretty high quality. And, and, you know, what we saw in Crimea, where they essentially took over the peninsula rapidly and, uh, uh, you know, with great skill, and what we saw in Syria, where, again, the Russians had operated with, with considerable skill, brutal, but skillful and effective, the expectation is that that's what we would see in Ukraine, and that's not what we're seeing. And there's some head-scratching about it. Some of it is that you're now seeing the sort of the rank and file. You're not seeing the elite units, the specially prepared units, and you know the rank and file, you know, lots of problems with just basic tactical maneuvers, coordination between different elements. You also have the problem of conscripts. They've been sending in conscripts. There are restrictions on the use of conscripts by the Russian army, but you know, conscripts, of course, had thought that they would not be sent outside of Russia proper. And you know, many of them, you know, according to reports, didn't even know where they were headed until they arrived in Ukraine. You've also seen an operational plan that's, I say, puzzling for military strategists in that the Russians are conducting this offensive in, along four axes. You know, they're coming from the north to Kyiv, uh, northeast to Kharkiv, on the east into the Donbass, and then the south out of uh, Crimea. And their forces aren't that large. You know, you know reports talk about 190,000, but that includes the militias. It includes the interior security forces. You know, the actual ground combat troops are not that large, and to split them into four axes that aren't mutually supporting is, again, a bit surprising. You know, standard doctrine would say that you would concentrate your forces along one or two axes. So a variety of reasons for why the Russians aren't, aren't doing very well, but there's no question that the performance is way below what people had expected. I keep hearing people asking, you know, why is the United States not doing more? Why are, is the U.S. and our allies, for instance, if they're sloppy in their, in their battle plans and, and so forth, why aren't we doing something directly is one question. And then the second question is, is are we, why are we not supplying aircraft? Third question is, is are we supplying enough equipment? Is it the right equipment? And are we getting it there fast enough? I just understand the frustration of a lot of people. You know, we've you know, seen the suffering of the Ukrainian people daily on TV. And of course, you know, the, you know, the terrible things that are happening to their cities and the hardships that people are enduring and you know, many people want to do more. And to its credit, the Biden administration has done a lot. We're, we're sending a lot of equipment to the Ukrainians. Of course, we started years ago and it's ramped up steadily in the last couple of months. And then now, since the war has, has begun, they have a bill up on the Hill to provide $10 billion for the war effort, of which about a billion and a half would be for additional uh, equipment for the Ukrainians. And we've been sending them a lot of particularly uh, you know things that are relatively easy to use people have heard a lot about the javelins and the stinger anti anti aircraft missiles and those appear to have been used and appear to have been quite effective we're ramping that up 
There has been some talk about providing aircraft, particularly the Poles and some of the Eastern European countries that have older Soviet aircraft that might be suitable for Ukraine. And it looks like that deal might be going through. The Poles have been a little reluctant, but the value is that the Poles have the same kind of aircraft that the Ukrainians use. So you can just take a Polish aircraft, fly it to Ukraine, Ukrainian pilot can get in and fly it. You can't do that with an American aircraft. It would take years for the Ukrainians to get the training and the maintenance pipeline and all of the support that was needed to make a new kind of aircraft operational. Uh, so you have to take one of the old Soviet aircraft that they're already uh, operating. And the idea is that the Poles would give some of their aircraft to the Ukrainians and the United States would give the Poles some American aircraft like F-16s, which the Poles already have and want more of. So it's sort of like everybody benefits. I think the Poles are a little nervous just because this would you know, have them more directly involved in the conflict. You know, They would be sending aircraft from their bases into Ukraine to fight the Russians, and they're a little worried about how the Russians might see that. Russians could reasonably argue that they were now participants in the conflict. So I wouldn't be surprised if they make a deal, but they're going to try to do it quietly and you know, so that it doesn't look like the Poles are getting involved. Can the Poles do it with deniability? I'm sure they're looking at ways to do that. You know, you know, maybe the Poles sell it to somebody else who flies it from there. You know, maybe they sell it to the United States. The United States flies it in from, you know, another base or something. Uh, I'm sure they're looking at ways to do that because, as I say, you know, the, the Poles are very nervous about, about possibly being drawn into this uh, conflict. Understandably so. There's a lot of history here that would say that, you know, the Poles want to avoid a war with Russia. Mark, what's the state of the Ukrainian Air Force to the extent that it even exists? Are, do they have pilots who, who could fly in combat missions against Russian assets and targets? Uh, they do. Uh, there is a Ukrainian Air Force. It was not very large and its readiness was not very high, but they did fly some, what are frankly, obsolete Soviet aircraft. I think what surprised people also is that it still, it still exists. The expectation was that the Russians would use their much superior air power to destroy the Ukrainian air force on the ground, and that by this time, the Russians would have an air, if not dominance, even monopoly. And we haven't seen that. And one of the questions out there is, you know, where is the Russian air force? It didn't make much of an appearance in the first, you know, at least week. You know, it may be appearing a bit more now. There are reports, in fact, of you know, Russian aircraft uh, being shot down. That's you know it's a, one of the mysteries, and there are a lot of theories about why that might be. Same with Russian UAVs, that they have a large number, and we do know that they're using some, but again, maybe not as extensively as uh, had been expected. Are we getting the Ukrainians, you, you mentioned javelins and stingers, are we getting them enough of that quick enough? I think the answer is we're, we're probably sending them as quickly as we can, and I suspect that that is ramping up. Now, I also suspect that if we knew we were going to be in this position, you know, a month or two ago, we would have sent a lot of them earlier. But, you know, at that time, I think most people didn't expect an actual war to, to break out that it might be something more limited. And to be fair, we did send a lot beforehand, but, you know, maybe not as many as Ukrainians now need. Mark, there's a huge debate surrounding a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And for some, it evokes grave concerns including, of course, that uh, opposing a no-fly zone could lead to World War III. How valid are these concerns? They're quite valid. A no-fly zone sounds very straightforward. It would be extremely risky. 
Because you have to keep in mind that it's not like with civilian aviation. With civilian aviation, if the aviation agency puts out a notice that says, stop flying, civilian aviation stops flying. But in a wartime situation, if you tell an adversary, stop flying, they keep flying and they say, what are you going to do about it? And that's the problem. You have to go in and enforce it. Enforce it means shooting down their aircraft. It also means taking out their ground-based air defense, because those are going to be shooting at you as you try to shoot down at their aircraft. So if we wanted to do this in Ukraine, we, we'd have to kill hundreds of Russians to enforce the no-fly zone. And we have some experience with this. In Iraq, for example, we had Northern Watch and Southern Watch, no-fly zones, and we were constantly having to bomb the Iraqis because of their ground-based air defenses. And that was a military that had been much diminished. The other thing is, a no-fly zone really wouldn't help that much. You know, people, like, I think, have this notion that if there's no-fly zone, then all these explosions are going to stop. Most of the explosions come from missiles and artillery, and that wouldn't be affected by a no-fly zone. The only thing that would be affected would be aircraft. And, of course, the Russians have a lot, but they haven't been using them that extensively. So you would still see most of the destruction of the cities continue, even with a no-fly zone. And I think it's been clear, you know, the, the Europeans aren't willing to sign up for a conflict with Russia, and I think most Americans aren't either. Yeah, that seems clear. Uh, although, you know, the chorus keeps rising that the U.S. and our allies are not doing enough directly to help. And, and as we watch the suffering of the Ukrainian people, it may grow harder and harder for us to sit on the sidelines. What, what do you think that might look like for us? You know, in terms of what more we could do, of course, the Biden administration is working hard to increase the, the flow of uh, supplies, which is necessary. You know, wars like this consume a lot of equipment and munitions, and you, know, you need a constant supply of those to keep armies operating. We saw that, for example, in the uh, Iran-Iraq war, where both sides were constantly on the international market getting more munitions and, and equipment. And, you're seeing that now in, here in, the, in maybe a little smaller way, but still very, very pressing. In terms of what more we could do, you know, there are some things like on intelligence that have been hinted at. We're clearly giving the Ukrainians some intelligence. We could give them more, more in terms of targeting intelligence, you know, intelligence that, could, that would allow them to pinpoint Russian targets and shoot at them. Now, of course, that would get the United States, NATO more involved because now you're really sort of a co-belligerent. So there's some risk, but you know that is uh, certainly possible. And then there's the, you know these kind of deals with the uh, aircraft, for example. You know, short of getting into you know World War III here, like what are some other things we can do to really help? The intelligence and you know the increasing supplies are really the two big things that we we can do. And then to the extent that we can facilitate a settlement, you know that would be helpful also. You know. Right now, the talks have been between Ukraine and Russia. They haven't gone anywhere. Putin isn't ready to make a deal, but you know there might be a deal to be made, some relief on sanctions for ceasefires. And I think we may see some discussion about that as you know the Russians you know maybe bog down and become more open to uh, some sort of settlement. I mean, we're hearing out of the coastal city of Mariupol that you know things efforts to bring in supplies failed again today. Planned evacuations were canceled over the weekend because of continued. Russian attacks, you know, we're hearing there's no medicine, no no heating, no products, no central water supply is broken. How much more can the Ukrainian people stand of this? 
Well, you know, besieged cities are dreadful places. And what happens is all the things you described there, this is not really unusual in, in, the, in conflict. You know, you've seen that sort of thing in Syria, you know, cities that have been surrounded and under siege, you know, terrible destruction, terrible suffering by the civilian population. Unfortunately, you look back at the history of warfare and, you know, civilians can take a lot and, you know, the suffering is dreadful. But you know, many cities have you know, held out under uh, you know, terrible conditions. And you know, it would not be surprising if cities like Mariupol or Kyiv endured weeks of siege and terrible civilian casualties in the interest of holding out and you know, denying Russians entry. Mark, what do you see as the next phase of Russia's war with Ukraine? What do you see as the next phase here? I think what you can... What you, going to see is what you're seeing now, you know, that is the Russians are doubling down on their offensive. They are conducting this offensive along these four axes. The main one is Kyiv. Uh, if they take the capital, you know, that might be the end of the war. The Ukrainians don't seem to have a plan to move the government in any effective way. So if the Russians were able to take the capital and disrupt the government, that might be the end. But of course, the uh, Ukrainians are, have been holding out. The Russians don't seem to be making very much progress. Coming in from the north is another prong that's coming in from the east, but they've been stuck for, really for a week. In the northeast, you know, there's Kyiv. That city is under siege. They've also sent out a, a prong of the offensive to the east towards Kyiv to take that from the, from the east. The Donbass seems to be you know, a holding action by the Russians. In the south, they've had their greatest success. They broke out of Crimea and they have columns going to the east towards Odessa, major Ukrainian seaport. They have a column that went north. That was this skirmish around the power plant that everybody heard about a couple of days ago. And then they have this column going east, and that's the one that surrounded Mariupol. Each one of those prongs, you know, could be quite uh, dangerous. I think the greatest danger, other than just having the Russians grind away on, on these axes, is that they do something in the east that outflanks the Ukrainian forces holding the Donbass. And, you know, between the forces up in Kyiv in the north and, you know, Mariupol in the south, you know, the Russians could try to dislodge those Ukrainian forces, which then would have to retreat. And that would be very, very difficult. I mean, you could see a collapse of Ukrainian forces. So I think the, the situation in the east there is really quite uh, unstable. Mark Hansian, thank you for your insights today. This is something we're going to be following very closely, and I'm sure we'll have you back on Truth of the Matter to talk about it as things unfold. Thank you so much for your insight. Thanks for having me on the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 